Be quiet, so you can. Thanks. Yeah, back to Startup Mindsets episode thirty-seven. Today we are talking to the founder of Incute, Josh Fristos. Uh, introduced by Safa Mazari, um, and Incute is a very interesting company that I've just started learning about. So, without further ado, Josh, happy to have you here, man, and uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, not really to start off on, but uh, <laughs> start with today. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, so, could you, I guess, just give us a color, color in the pages with what what Incute is, and just a high level overview of it. Yeah. So, Incute is this idea of democratizing Silicon Valley. So there's tech hubs all over the country and all over the world where they have this, these systems in place, the uh, professional services, be it law firms or strategic advisors or marketing agencies geared towards startups. They have the startup founders themselves that are developed out of university programs and they have the resources necessary to understand how to start businesses. There's incubators and accelerators and there's the sources of capital. These exist within these systems in specific geographic areas. Now, because of work from home and a lot of um, things that have happened during COVID, these geographic areas aren't really as, as important as they used to be for running an incubator or accelerator. And there's a lot of bright people all over this country with amazing ideas. They can start companies. But they don't actually have the means to do so. And by means, I mean it's knowledge, guidance, structure, um, advice, things like that, or even access to these sources of capital. So what Incude does is Incude is a business planning tool that is guided and interactive for the founder and helps them create their business and explain their vision and their idea from the problem statement to their competitive analysis to showing the roadmap. And this provides them the structure to understand how to formulate a business plan, but also how to convey their goals to the investors or to the mentors and other parties. Incube then takes all this data and we enable that founder to connect resources of capital or apply for incubators and accelerators, where in the incubator and accelerator, this is um, used as a tool to help them guide them through the course so they can share their Incube plan with the advisors and the mentors at the incubator accelerator. And then later on, the incubator and accelerator can use this profile to track them into the future so they can get better data back. And so the investors that are now portfolio holders and investors in this company, they can better understand what this company is doing. In essence, this is a business planning tool that helps founders start companies. And on the back end, it is an analytics tool for the parties involved in the startup ecosystem. Wow, that's interesting. So kind of what the software is is meant for is kind of catalyzing entrepreneurship, right? Like, like, you know, people have ideas, but they don't know exactly what to go do after the idea, right? So maybe you get your software and the software kind of organizes a little bit of the process and they kind of can structure things, uh, you know, better than, than like they would traditionally do. Yeah, because what we found just interviewing a lot, a lot of founders going through incubators, talking to VCs is that many founders, they come forward with an idea, yeah. but the idea isn't necessarily a product or a business. It's something cool. Uh-huh. Um, and there are instances like say the Snapchats or Facebooks of the world where something neat can become a very profitable endeavor. Um, but in majority of cases, something needs to actually solve a market need in order to be funded if you're lacking connections. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to give people the structure and guidance 
to enable them to take these ideas and actually turn them into successful businesses that can be realized and funded. Because otherwise, these ideas just fizzle out and die. And um, yeah. That's, that's interesting. So what, uh, what kind of made you want to solve this problem and, and kind of go, go do this? Um, is there like a time that, like you saw that you had a friend who needed this type of help and software? Like to, to, to it was a weird journey. Um, so I was working for, excuse me, um, a large company and my, I was working on government uh, security contracts Mm-hmm. Um, with the ATF and the FBI and Homeland, a lot of people on um, some kinds of uh, intelligence and ballistics identification technology. And a lot of my job was going um, and implementing this technology and planning it out for uh, places where gun crime occurs. Yeah. So I'd go to really, really impoverished um, areas that have very low economic development that are kind of in this cycle of crime. And then I talked to like U.S. attorneys and the mayors and the police chiefs and things like that. And I spent about three years trying to understand why the development wasn't happening in these areas. And a lot of it is it's brain drain, it's capital flight. There's a lot of things going on, but it's also like a lack of entrepreneurship, not from necessarily level like people are starting smaller businesses or um, yeah. what we consider unofficial businesses, but they're not starting these anchor um, anchor businesses that can actually grow to the level that they can support a community and they draw people in to come to that community, if that makes sense. Um, so after like going deep down this, we were actually developing a different application at the time. So summarize it, it was very similar to Blinkist. And this is more like a side project for me. And Blinkist ended up coming out and we ended up scrapping the idea um, and then really focusing down on this problem of just being like, you know, we've made businesses, we've done this. This isn't easy. It's super difficult. Um, Like, how can we expect to create economic development in these areas when it is so unbelievably difficult? And even though it's difficult, it's sometimes it's just impossible because you're like, imagine you live in rural, I don't know, Nebraska. And like, you don't know what a venture capitalist, you don't even know what a venture capitalist is. Right. You don't know what an incubator or accelerator is. You don't you have an idea that is beautiful and wonderful and solves a problem that is innate to your community. Because I, as someone who lives in Chicago, do not functionally understand the problems of, say, a farm in Nebraska and the kind of technology that needs to be implemented to solve the problems in that farm. Only those people understand those problems and can solve them. So thus this business. (laughs) Does that make sense? No, that makes sense, man. Uh, uh... I think, you know, you know, that analogy uh, that you use makes it visual, more easy to visualize since, uh, you know, big cities, you kind of see um, everything kind of in front of you, but like, I guess like in a rural area, then, then in that case. Yeah, or even kind of, smaller cities, like, well, I guess we speak from a place of like having all these things around us, right? Right. And now that you can live anywhere and work anywhere, it, it like, there's no lack. You know what I'm saying? If you had an amazing job, you worked at Google, you can yeah. still live in the middle of Kansas right now. You oh, can yeah, do that. sure. That's fine. You know what I'm saying? Because you're, you're going to work remotely and stuff like that. So we can spread out this intellectual capital across yeah. the country and develop businesses in all of these places that anyone can work at. And it really just helps everyone across the board. And um, 
I think sometimes we don't understand the resources that we don't have in these small towns, you know what I'm saying? Or um, I, I break things into three categories. So you have, and I forgot who coined this, but you have known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Known knowns are the things that you understand, you under, like, you know that you know these things. Unknown unknowns are things that you, you know exist, but you don't really know them, right? Um, and then unknown unknowns are things you're completely unaware of. So like getting your startup funded is a complete unknown unknown for most of these people. And I think if you were to survey a majority of America, they would have no idea what an incubator or accelerator is at all. Right, right, right. Yeah, so uh, that's great, great uh, use cases, I think. Um, definitely, you know, with entrepreneurship, just uh, as you mentioned, 23% more created during a COVID time, right? Yeah. I mean, there's crazy too. Like, so it's something like, um, I want, I don't want to misquote the stat. So just put an asterisk to this. <laughs> I think it's, um, was it, um, solopreneurs and freelancers are projected to go up like 64% okay. between 2021 and 2028. And then I think it was like a 71% increase in number of businesses registered, yeah, um, I think that's right. Yeah, 2008 and 2020, like the amount of businesses being created, both official and unofficial, is dramatically higher than it's been in a very long time. Um, and a lot of it is just because, like, the barrier to starting a business, yeah, because, it, because you can do it online now without having physical infrastructure, yeah, is really, really low. Um, so you have a lot of people from all kinds of backgrounds that can do all kinds of really, really interesting things. And uh, those people just need to be directed. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like everybody's a mini entrepreneur nowadays. For yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, so if you're someone who like for a long time in a previous business model, our um, customer avatar was a girl with an Etsy store that sold like um, necklaces. That's what we were thinking about. I'm like, okay, so Pettingen, this girl with an Etsy store wants to sell necklaces and she's doing pretty well. And now she wants to open a larger like e-commerce thing, or she wants to open a brick and mortar, or she wants to do a channel sales deal of like Target. How does girl with Etsy store become national brand? Right, right. And how do we un understand and explain to girl with Etsy store how <laughs> to be selling into Target and have major distribution channels and to hire on staff and to get a supply chain that functionally works and like to raise the capital necessary for that business expansion. Yeah. Yeah. You know I think that, that's a big jump, but it's possible. Like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I guess that's kind of a little bit how, you know, your product comes into uh, a yeah. conversation. That's, that's so we're, we're obviously more focused on tech businesses uh, right now. It's the low hanging fruit in this business uh, in this space. Right. Um, because it, developing a lot of these brick and mortar things and physical products those, um, those need some other, I guess, rubrics is the best way to put it. So eventually that's what we want to deliver. But right now we're really corely focused on software businesses just because it's more uniform. It, it, right. The business plans in the spaces are more uniform. So then giving a consistent path for these or a template, I guess, is um, more doable because there's a lot of commonalities across SaaS businesses. Yeah, I think, you know, I'd love to just transition into a little bit about like uh, how you kind of understand entrepreneurship um, yeah. with, with that. Like, 
did you, you know, what kind of made you, I guess we talked about it earlier, but what kind of made you really interested in, in becoming like a startup founder and like did that, do you think like you had a role model that, that kind of made you switch your thinking and, and want to leave the corporate world? To, to Yeah, I mean, so I had a role model, but also I think I was just like geared towards this from a young age. Like I was always doing like not strange things for like money, <laughs> but I think the taking up a lot of really creative endeavors, like I just like making things is the best okay. way to put it. Um, and trying to find why ways to get money out of it or having, they're all failed and dumb and like, whatever. I'm like, oh, I'll just, you know, just stream a thing. I was coaching Starcraft for a while. Like I did all kinds of dumb things, but, um, I met this guy named Gary Brewer while working at, um, Motorola solutions and, uh, his company got sold to us in an M and a deal. And then I got put on to an overlay team where I directly reported to him. Uh And he was like big at Rand back in the day and uh, ran a few companies. And it was interesting, like traveling around the country with this like 60 year old guy who got their like tech company acquired by this fortune 500. And I was in my mid twenties and I was just like, huh. And we just had a lot of time to spend together. And I kind of was looking at it. I'm like, I could do this. Like, you know, because like once you meet like a person that successfully does it and you're like, oh, they're a normal person. Yeah. Like this is happening to me a lot in life where like for some reason we put people at these aspirational levels and we're like, oh my God, I could never do that. That's crazy. Right. And then you meet someone and you're like, oh, they're normal. Sure. And then you're like, oh, cool. I can do that. And that's the, and that was, I guess the thing that I was like, cool, I can do this. Um, so maybe that was the spark or the ignition, but I think I was geared towards it and I would eventually have ran into that person or just started something larger myself regardless. Cause it was a longer trend of just being basically seeing that, that path in the corporate world where it's like, this is going to be like 30 years when you become like CEO of this company. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, a lot of, I don't know if it's just my circle of friends or whatever and they're like you know i gotta quit this job and i think i don't know why uh i mean the maybe, majority of millennials are leaving their jobs this year though. yeah yeah and maybe we could talk a bit, a bit about that topic since um you know i guess we're kind of you're we're, you know we're we're in that that space and we kind of fit that criteria but like do you do you, uh, what do you attribute the rise of i guess like the rise of people leaving their jobs to make a company or is it burnout or do you think it's just no passion for the stuff and I think it's a variety of things. I think that we're in like what you could readily call both the new economy revolution, but also a new period of enlightenment Okay, kind of brought upon um, by like uh, people having a lot of time to sit at home and reflect on their yeah. state. Of- yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you have a lot of time to sit at home and reflect, you kind of truly see the cracks because this sounds silly, but uh, there was a part in Russian history where they had, uh, they basically, the government owned all the vodka factories. They would make sure that the, the citizens just drank enough that they were completely unaware of how bad the serfdom was. They would go to work, do backbreaking labor. They'd come home, they'd get drunk, they'd go to work. They'd yeah. go into a cycle, right? Yeah, and then I think sometimes, even though we don't like to perceive ourselves as some form of serfdom, it's you go to work, you work your butt off, you come home, you go to sleep, you go out with your friends, maybe have a fun night. And yeah. then eventually that cycle breaks and you realize 
oh, my employer doesn't own me. I can make other decisions. I can do what I want. And I think this yeah. is a big reality check for a lot of people, man. Uh, I think that, uh-huh. I also think it's the, um, the convergence of need and technology. We had a bunch of technology that already existed, like the internet infrastructure and all these things. But I don't think we're utilizing them to their full capacity because without being forced into technological revolution through COVID, we wouldn't have changed our work habits and the way that we function within our institutions unless we were literally forced to do so. Like we were now that, what's up? <laughs> like, like the way that the, the, the COVID pandemic forced everybody to yes. change their lifestyle. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it's a force of reflection, but also a forced adoption of technology. And what it did is it, I think a lot of people in our generation understood that these things were possible, uh-huh. but more or less forcing the hand of say older, more ingrained people that have um, the power in the current structure, You're right. except that these changes have occurred and um, to give people that are younger a chance to have more independence, whereas they might've not achieved that until later in their career. Like previously, like I, I, when I grew up, my dad worked from home a lot of the time. He okay. takes sales calls that from the house, but most people in the '90s and 2000s, like early 2000s and late '90s, were not working from home. You know, but they a lot of them had the capacity too. Technically, you're right. Yeah, and I think there's like a stigma of you're not going to be productive at home, or yeah. you know, like goof off and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> and there's downsides both sides. I think that people are right on both sides of this argument, like. Am I more productive at home? I think in bursts, I am more productive at home for the solo work, what I call deep work. Okay. I think that the Zoom or Google Meet meetings, not as effective as being in a room with people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah. I like like your point there. I uh, remember being, uh, going to work too and taking the subway to work and just like, okay, time to set. All right. It's time to go safe, time to go back on the train and just never... Any cycle of like what seemed like a groundhog day. Um, yeah. You know, uh, now I guess that cycle's broken since, or somewhat broken. I'm uh, just a different groundhog day now. Yeah, it's a different groundhog uh, day. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, <laughs> now I just wake up in my house and then I work for 12 hours and I'm still in my house and then I go to yeah. sleep in my house. And then, so I, yeah. I don't actually think it's better. It might be worse in some ways. It's probably mentally worse for us, to be completely honest. I mean, some, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. But... I think that it enables more people to participate um, in the economy. Because if you think about the economy in the form of, um, okay, so there are a bunch of jobs that exist and each person is unique in a different way. And we all have a best fit for a certain thing. Like, because you are unique, you are probably statistically the best for a very specific. Now we don't know what that is, but through free market um, systems, you will eventually weasel your way into the thing that is best for you. But sometimes you're born in the wrong place where those opportunities don't exist. So if all the jobs are online, then people can best fit themselves into the spaces that they best specialize and be more productive and be happier. Are, are you seeing, I guess, uh, this is like a geographical question that uh, at a, um, you know, these industries are getting revolutionized from a talent perspective also because they can hire anyone anywhere? Um, yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to that, right? So, like, I think we can go down a whole rabbit hole of, like, uh, globalism yeah. and, uh, like, how necessarily, like, um, maybe the American worker competing with, say, the, like, 
yeah. Malaysian worker for an IT job or for a call center job might actually drive down prices and might make things worse for the average American worker. Huh. So there's problems like that. But when we're talking about specifically high-skilled labor, which I think is what we're referring to, um, yes, I, I think that like that holds true and there's significant benefits to all this. Like think about like, imagine you're born in, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of lawyers around you. You're in California. You're in rural Oregon, right? You're, you're just out there in the woods and stuff like that. But you went to like Oregon State and you have a good education and you just wanted to move back home with your family because maybe your dad is sick and you need to take care of your dad. And there's extenuated circumstances in your life. But this is a small town and there's like a few things going on. There's a repair shop for your cars. There's a grocery right. store. And yeah. it's, you know, it's just a small average main street town. Now, you wouldn't be able to put your skills to work. You're an educated person. You might have experience in the corporate world and things like that, but you're here because you need to take care of someone in your family. You should still be able to use your skills to contribute to the, to contribute to the larger society and do something fulfilling, even though this is where you geographically need to be at this given time. Because I think there's a difference between intellectual capital and, say, like manual physical production levels of capital. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, that, uh, I think, um, I guess that lifestyle should be, uh, you know, allowed and, and kind of, I guess, championed in, in some sense. Since, uh, well, I mean, a happy worker is probably a more effective worker. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess just like two years ago, that wouldn't have been possible without taking time off or vacation, and de depending on what job you were in. I mean, there's, so the things that I think about, like creating a team right now, is social cohesion and corporate governance are like two big things that come to mind because the downside when hiring people that work in a disparate workforce is how do I create social cohesion be between my workers? So my teams understand each other. And so the people feel like they are part of something bigger Yeah, and they're working towards a coalesced goal. And these aren't, you know what I mean? They're familiar so they can talk candidly so they can communicate more effectively with their team members. And I think the way we solve that is you let people live wherever they want, and then you go on like corporate retreats. Hmm. Ask the entire budget for corporate real estate or for office space. And then you say, once every quarter or bi-monthly, we're going on a trip, depending on your team size. And your that team is all going to meet up somewhere for like a four-day weekend, or you know, I mean, maybe it's during the week. week. Yeah. So they'll call it five days. You're going to meet somewhere and you're going to work together. You're going to do the planning for that quarter. You're going to get to know each other. You're going to do team building activities. You're going to do that kind of social activity you need to do to bond with these people. So when you hop on the digital meetings, when yeah. you get back to work, you feel closer to those people because you've met them. And I think that's really, really important to make sure that we're still having social bonds with the people that we're working with. Uh -huh. But I think this can be solved without an office space. Yeah, true. I do like that uh, thing when you brought up, you know, cutting the office budget since. It's cheaper to go on a vacation every quarter than. Yeah, dude, that's, that's a great point, man. That's, that's a great <laughs> point. <laughs> we could all go to the Dominican Republic for a five to seven day vacation, everyone in the company, and rent out a five star resort and chill. Yeah. <laughs> we could do that once every quarter, and it would cost less than having a building. 
Yeah, you, you, I, I, <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's, that's this is at the rates of COVID prices, by the way, of like $11 per person for that time frame, which, yeah, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, I think, you know, this would be a couple more things here that would be great to be talking, talk about is, uh, like the tech scene in Chicago and, and Illinois, I mean, or it, I, I said it wrong, it's Illinois, right? It's whatever you want, man. Whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I guess, I, I mean, um, you know, you had mentioned that there's a lot of legacy industry in, in Chicago and I guess yeah. like getting re- revolutionized with, with digital. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, I guess I'm speaking to the people who don't, are not familiar with Chicago. Yeah. Chicago is an industry town in the sense of the word that like, we don't have factories and like meat packing plants here. This is not like, <laughs> they're not big smokestacks. Um, you can Google a picture. It's, but when I say industry, this is very centric around, um, there's a lot of logistics companies here. There's a lot of finance here. Um, and it's kind of the convergence of those two. And then we also have a lot of things in the, um, the packaging space for the Midwest, again, because that ties into the logistics industry of shipping and packaging things. And then when we get down to tech, the tech scene that's evolving in Chicago um, I think it started out as some of our larger Chicago-based firms. So Boeing, Motorola, um, Deloitte, Abbott, AbbVie, uh-huh. um, Walgreens, um, things like that. Um, and then other companies coming around to har- kind of harvest labor from there. So you have your Googles and you have your Microsofts and you have your Salesforces and you have all these different things. So there is a very inspired tech scene here. Uh-huh. It's just not the same tech scene that say Boston or San Francisco has, but I'd say it's very similar to it, a little more developed than maybe a Dallas or Houston. So I don't know if that example is going to work for most people, uh, but if you've traveled enough, I think you might understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah I got to do more travel. I mean, uh, I think that, <laughs> I think that uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm from San Francisco and like I've, kind of lived in California lived in this world yeah Yeah, I mean but I'm so like appreciative that there's other worlds out there I mean other you know well they feed off each other it's what I was saying earlier man they're ecosystems right so it was like the tech scene in California wouldn't have existed without the finance scene that would that was put up for the film industry like you guys are a direct product of people coming in to fund ventures Uh films because you don't know how much money the film is going to make so the capital climate was set up from the start to be that way yeah, yeah. Right. That's a good, good and it's the same all across the world. So you have different investing habits in, say, Chicago versus New York versus San Francisco, and people have different risk tolerances. Um, okay. But um, yeah, I mean, you go to New York and you just see that every a lot of things are set up around the finance industry. It's the things that serve the finance industry. And then in San Francisco, you might have the things that serve the tech industry. Chicago, I think it's in my opinion, at least, it was the things that serve the distribution and um, shipping industry and then kind of grew from there. Gotcha. Yeah, just a few more questions here, man. Um, I guess uh, going back back into Incute and the current company that you created, like what, what, uh, what kind of what came when you you were just starting? Like, did you have to build software to, to make the thing? And Oh, yeah. I mean, we served nothing, right? So, like, this was like napkin sketches. Okay. It wasn't really napkin sketches. It was more or less giant pieces of construction paper, like artboard <laughs> sketches. But regardless, I have like a giant whiteboard over there. So 
Did you, um, no. Yeah. Did you guys build the uh, software like by yourselves, or like how did? Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, what is it called? Uh, how did that process go? Like, did, was that like your first time? It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what made it a nightmare, man? Like, just like it's just it's it takes forever to make this stuff happen, and like it's tedious. And um, I don't know. So I actually think that like the time of getting it up to the point that it is now only took a few months. What it was it was the prototyping. I was trying to get it right. Because oh, yeah. I think a good way to put this might be, imagine you're trying to make um, a new flavor of soda, right? Mm. Making soda, like you, if and you work in a soda factory, you know how to make soda. But you're going to have to test a lot of flavors to figure out what people like. You know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, this one sucks. This is a bad idea. Nobody wants pomegranate soda or like whatever, right? Until you're like, oh, this is the one. So it's more like testing the stuff, making prototypes, showing it to prospective customers, getting feedback, we're going to the drawing board. Does this solve the problem? Does this not solve the problem? Does this allow us the right capacities to like actually deliver the product? Um, and then, yeah. So I would say that the planning part and the prototyping part was probably the longest and most difficult. And then once we kind of figured out and we locked into exactly what it should be, and we kind of got confirmed uh, product market fit from um, not even confirmed, but pilots with people that validated that this is a purchasable product. Um, that's kind of when we're like, okay, we, we might have something here. This might be good. And then it's running now it's the, the product is developed. I mean, we're always developing a product. We're always making it better. True. Um, but, and now it's more like getting the feedback and trimming it down. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that does. Yeah. Just iterate and then, you know, take what yeah. works and delete what doesn't work. Um, it does, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, did, did you come from an engineering background or like this? Did you guys, both of y'all uh, start, start off like this? Me and my girlfriend are like opposites. We're really interesting. Um, I love him. He's the best, like literally the best. Um, but so I started off in software engineering and I did a lot of programming in like high school, like three hours a day. Um, no way, dude. <laughs> at high school, spent at a community college, like doing software or computer science classes. So I went into a software engineering degree with um, already like two years of doing it. And then I was really bored by it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and then I got a business and professional communications degree. And um, got into sales and management, and um, I did enterprise technology sales from the perspective of uh, like solutions architecture and like planning. Basically, my job was like to put together a bunch of these large enterprise um, government solutions and figure out how to collectively smash together but different tech products to make one cohesive thing we could offer to a customer. Oh, nice. So a lot of my job was like working with software engineers and making sure all the APIs worked. But like I was doing more of the sales product side of it. But I had a background enough in software engineering and stuff that I understood what was going on. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah I, I find that that's critical. But I guess like maybe you're, since I guess this quite, one more question would be relevant to you is that uh, you're helping, you know, entrepreneurs um, create businesses, right? Like, and say, yeah. say one of them is like not an engine, like a software engineer, a product designer. Oh, you don't need to be at all. Right. Yeah. Like, do you I, I don't do the programming. My co-founder is like the opposite. Like he went to business school first and then just taught himself how to code and ended up working in rapid prototyping at Accenture and being like, a, what is it? He was just doing high level architecture and leading prototyping teams for like Fortune 500s. So like he didn't even have a background in that. But I also don't think you need to be a programmer at all because 
I think all you need to be able to do is be a competent. It's like, if you go to Figma, like yeah. the website or Adobe XD, you can design a product like uh-huh. how it works. And then you can go to like lucid chart or make a flow chart to be like, technically from a technical standpoint, this is how, when I click this button, it sends the data to here, which does this. And if you can technically explain how it works and you can make a mock-up of how it looks and you can write some specific documentation, I, you can go to a firm, you can have it built for you. Um, I think that some base level knowledge is needed. Like a great example that I use for this is like, you need to be an architect. Yeah. You don't need to understand how the, the people building your house understand that there needs to be electricity and plumbing and the things like that, right? You're right. designing the house. And from this perspective, you need to know how the house is going to look and make sure that house can stand up. The people that are going to be building it are going to make sure that the nails are in the wall correctly and that, you know I mean? It's built to spec, but you need to at least know enough about how a house even works to tell someone how to go in there and do the construction. Yeah, definitely. definitely. You don't need to be an expert in construction. Does that, does that make sense? No, I love that. And yeah, I love that comparison. Like, uh, it's, it's, <clears throat> I'm not necessarily like an engineer or by nature, right? But, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, that's just, I, I guess that's like electrical engineering and like physical engineering compared yeah. to like a digital engineer with like, you know, software and I think mm-hmm. it's a great visual. Uh, yeah, you know, I think, uh, I guess that's also another reason why there's more boost in entrepreneurship, right? Since like people can kind of. Oh, you can outsource your programming. Like I do not like outsourcing my programming, but if I was doing a less technical product, um, I would be okay with outsourcing the programming. Um, I think if you're going to outsource your communication skills, you need to be spot on and you need to really find a team that you trust. And the biggest thing that you're going to run into is that if you don't have a technical background, then Find somebody who does. Um, yeah, um, you are not going to know how to interview correctly for this because you're not going to know the right questions to ask to figure out if it's actually the right firm for you. Because, like, you're like, I'm a great programmer. And you're like, cool, you seem like a great programmer, right? You don't even yeah. know the interview questions to ask. And if yeah. you do know the right interview questions, you can't really validate them because you don't have that background knowledge. So get a technical person that you trust around you to vet the firms and stuff like that you want to outsource to at the minimum. Um, so outsourcing is fine. Just, just vet who you're working with. Yeah, most, most definitely. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of wrapping up to, we're getting to the wrapping up part, but, um, just like three common questions we normally ask all the guests we talk to are, uh, I guess the first one is, um, or one of the first ones is, uh, what do you love about being an entrepreneur and entrepreneurship in, in general, since your company really just caters? I mean, it's that? massive. Like I wake up when I, the joke is that you wake up when you want to wake up. I wake up because my entire meet day is filled with meetings, right? <laughs> so the, um, I like the freedom asterisk. I have no freedom because my entire day is busy nonstop. I saw a meme a little bit ago. It's like, I quit my nine to five. Now I work 24 seven. Yes. So <laughs> hypothetically, I like the freedom, but that's not really true. At least you have the idea that nobody is telling you what to do. And you're the one that is imposing the ridiculousness on yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's like almost self-inflicted harm in that way. Um, and I like the grind. I think that the best part about entrepreneurship is the fact that every single day, if you like learning, every single day is learning a new thing. So you're going to come into it and you're like, I took a finance class once. And you're like, okay, you're expected to know like MBA level finance now. And then it's, uh, you know, I think I understand accounting. It's like, no, get good. Um, you know, like, I negotiated contracts for like my 
my salary and stuff. And it's like, no, now you need to like really un- like get some lawyers and understand contract law and like start like start yeah. figuring this shit out. Yeah. Right. Um, there are so many little things that you learn and I don't think you become truly an expert in any of them, but you become pretty, pretty fucking good at most of them. And so like, I would call entrepreneurship the charcuterie board of uh, skills where you just have a little bit of everything, but in very high quality. And if you like that, and if you're a little ADD and you want to go from task to task, to task, to task, um, then it's really fun. I think it is not for everyone. And I think it is insanely stressful. And I think that you need to be ready for it. And I don't think everyone's cut out for it. If you are, I think that most people can do some form of entrepreneurship. Maybe that's like you start a YouTube channel or are you, uh, yeah, totally. online, right. There's different forms of entrepreneurship for all people. But, um, if you want to start a serious business, then it's, um, I think you need to be idealistically or vision driven and you have to want that thing and be passionate and let that passion drive you. And then the beauty of it is that the passion feels so good and just following that passion feels so good that when you go to sleep every single day, you know that you're doing something for a reason and you never sit up and you're like, wow, I hate my boss. And I don't know why I have this job. That is a question you never ask yourself. And that's the best thing about it. Yeah. I think, I think, I totally am on board with you on that. I think, I guess like the, the other thing that hinders this type of work would probably just be like a money thing, right? Like where you're scrapped for cash and you need to either raise the money or make the money through, through the business. And- yeah. I mean, we, we are, we got all the way through this at, I think it costs us $22,000, including us paying for our amount to live. And it's not a little amount of money, but it's oh. not, if I'm going to be completely honest, it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, like if I lost $22,000 in a single day, I would cry. Right, like, right, right. And then it'd be sad for, like, the next, like, year. Uh-huh. But if it's, like, building an asset, like, if you're willing yeah, to spend man, you're money assets, on a car, yeah. then you should be willing to spend that kind of money starting a business. That, make, that makes total sense. And I think, you know, it's a conversation that we haven't had here yet. But, uh, you know, the, the price it costs to create a business, it, it's the money's got to, you know, it takes money to I make can even do it for a few grand. Honestly, yeah. it's yeah, about yeah. how much you're willing to bootstrap. Uh-huh. Right. And then you've, your cost, your, your cost analysis you need to do is bootstrapping costs versus like, rent. like I can bootstrap for a really long time, but I'm paying rent every month and paying for food and groceries regardless. Right. Mm-hmm. So sure. if I paid, <laughs> if I put more money into paying for things so I can do things faster, maybe I'd pay my less money on food and groceries and rent. Yeah. What do you think? You know what, <laughs> what do you think that feeling of like beating break even feels? Or I mean, maybe you've you know you guys have gotten there. I, I don't completely know, but like, what do you think? You know, after all the money you poured in and seeing that money, uh, I mean, come in in sales or revenue. You know, like, I, how do you describe that? Or how would you think you would? Relief. Relief. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just. I think it's relief. For sure. Yeah. I, think, I think you want to say that, oh my God, we're going to party so hard. But the funniest thing about it is like when you start raising and you start like, is you're almost so negative the whole time, or at least for us, where yeah. we don't want to set our expectations high. We're like, well, like the company's valued at this and like this is happening and this is pretty good. 
Um, but you want to tamper your expectations. So you're not too let down if it fails. Cause you're like, well, the reality is that most of these fail and we can still fail at some point. Right. So the, um, I think when you start doing that and raising capital and getting money in, it's just, uh, it's that validation, right? It's that you're a little more validated. You're a little more validated. Things are going well. You're not an idiot. <laughs> things right. Um, and I, I don't know if it's an overwhelming moment of joy. Right. I think it's, um, there's an episode of Silicon Valley, I think, where they get invested into and the guy pukes immediately after. Yeah, that, that, um, yeah. I, yeah, 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 I remember the TV show. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that because I was thinking about like when we were talking to like VCs last and stuff and I'm like, I, I don't think like, I'm just like, it's not, happiness is not the feeling. The feeling is like anxiety because it's like, oh fuck, if this works, then we need to hire so many people. Yeah. And then I have so many yeah. commitments to so many other people. Yeah. There's so many other things and like, it just gets harder. So as an, as a person that wants to give good advice, I say, it'll be exciting. But as a real human being, I will say that it is, it is stressful and uh, yeah. it is, uh, yeah. it is relief, but maybe not a purpose of joy and celebration. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, that's really valuable insight from you. Uh, just one or two, one, one, I promise yeah. one more question here. One or two. In, in your own words, what is your, how would you define your own startup mindset? Um, what do you mean by mindset? Like overall? Yeah. Just like, how do you perceive the startup? You, I mean, I guess it's pretty similar to how, what do you like about entrepreneurship? But I guess like what, how do you, how do you define like your approach to building a startup or, or I have four core values? Um, and I'll break it down into that. It's communication, care, critical thinking, and curiosity. Okay. Every decision needs to be made with those four core values in our company. So everything needs to be communicated clearly. And we need to have clear conversations about it. We want to push boundaries and be curious and to try to find new ways of solving things and not be reliant on the previous way things have been solved. We want to everyone involved to care deeply and feel passion for what we're doing. And then to think critically and to really engage mentally in um, understanding the systems that are involved in this startup ecosystem and delivering a cohesive and effective product. So I don't know if that's a mindset, but if this was to be categorized into a single term, yeah, I would say that passion, passion driven, but also like a very, like we take like critical analysis very seriously. Like it's very data driven. Yeah. Um, one, one last thing here. One, two more last, uh, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? My 20 year old self. Um, you'll have other girls like you when she leaves, it'll be okay. Um, I was like devastated. I'm like, no girl will ever like me again. Um, also yeah. 20 year old me. Changing majors is not going to be the end of your life. You'll be fine. Sure. It's not bad to do something. If you're going into the same industry as your dad does not mean I'm just like my dad and it's not going to, and I yeah. hate it because I don't like my dad. So I don't want to do what he did. No. Um, For sure. 20 year old me yeah, should no, love it. Yeah. Adult and realize that um, I am who I am and that um, maybe 20 year old me needed to realize to have a little more self-confidence. For sure. 
Um, yeah. Uh, also, the world's not literally going to end when every bad thing happens. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Man. Um, I guess the last part is like, uh, how, how can people learn about Enqueued and uh, either test a product or become a customer and, and kind of follow your journey? Uh, yeah. So we're, we're mostly selling through um, channels that are like a direct sales to enterprise customers right now. But if you want to be a founder that is just using it as a business planning tool, Right now, it is free at Enqueued.com, and you can sign up and just go use it. And it will only be free for a little bit because I think I don't know when this is going to air, um, but we are implementing paid subscriptions pretty soon on that. But if you come in, I think there's like a pretty solid chance that you'll probably have a legacy account, so you'll just have it for free forever. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah it's been it's been an amazing episode man learned a bunch and you know can't say enough about uh the work that you're doing and just want to say thanks again and, and uh, uh great great to have you yeah thanks for having me this is fun for sure dude <laughs> uh let me do this